you think I should tell him about the time that I knew this tattooed chick? Do you think I should? Huh? And uh, what was tattooed on her, huh? Should I tell about that? Or, or should I save that to be sent to them in a plain sea of wrapper? Jumper 21. Send your name and address to uh, Whoopi. You care of that? Or uh, Art Lover. You care of who you are. That's better. Art Lover. You care of who you are. And uh, uh, Martha Dean will take care of all that mail for you. Okay, fellas, time to turn on a radio station. It's time to start playing radio now. It's time to open up, as we say in the uh, lexicon of sociological terminology, uh, the lines of communication from one individual in a complex society and another. Uh, we believe in the mobility principle upward mobility, of course, in the communication syntax as we raise our sights higher and higher. Once again, the eyes of the world, the ears of the world are upon old chef. The great cameras gray. The lights flash. The bulbs flare. Planes fly overhead. The drums roar. The drum majorettes spin their batons. And once again, we bring you the life and time of a 20th century American in this 20th century time. Yes, for 20th century listeners and viewers, viewers everywhere, those who are existing, those who are loving, those who are waiting, those who are weeping, those who are watching, and those who are flown, I know. Or hang on. some shoddy back street on the west side. Will he win or will he lose? 
We are going to know in just a few seconds because they're up and running. It's time now for the great race of life. There goes Mr. Leader, well into the lane. He is rounding the first turn and coming into the back stretch, and he is leading by 122 lengths. Back in the field is Mr. Shepard. Back in the field is Barry. Barry Farber. Back in the field is all the other nighttime guys. But they have staying power, ladies and gentlemen. Another coming up now. And once again, we visit the old folks of home. As we see the three of them now, quietly sitting, sinking into the west. It's been a happy time and a happy day in this 20th century life of ours. Good night. The end, friends. Fellow sufferers. Wasn't that exciting? It certainly was. Uh, I, I think uh, once in a while it, it pays a man to look inward and to see just uh, where things are. I mean, really, to, to, to put up the old periscope, as we say, <laughs> on Madison Avenue and spin it around and see if we're about to be torpedoed. You know, you never know when you're going to get torpedoed. Just keep that old periscope spinning and you can see the horizon out there and maybe once in a while you'll pick up an idea or two. Maybe you'll be able to steal a plot occasionally and make a couple of bucks. Well, of course, uh, I, I think that uh, that uh, today's youth is somewhat fortunate in one way. Uh, very few of today's youth are presented with the insurmountable problem or confronted with their own lack of talent. Uh, you know, it, I suppose most youth today... Now, I must say, before we go any further, that... There have been a lot of people worried about why I'm such a sore head, uh, about why from time to time I knock over the coffee table here in the studio, and why, well, you know, you're, I've said some pretty rotten things on, around the water cooler. You've heard me skip, and I want to, I, I really do. You've, you've seen me. And, and to those of you who have sat in the same section with me occasionally out at Yankee Stadium or Mets uh, Ballpark, wherever they're playing, Shea Stadium, you've heard me say some rotten things. You have. You've heard me yell my skull out from time to time, and you know that. And you've heard me from time to time here on these very microphones, as uh, Barry Farber says so indelibly. You've heard me from time to time <laughs> on these very microphones. Uh, well, I don't know. I think we were using the microphone in Studio 6, actually. It wasn't this very microphone. It's a cheap microphone I used to use on those old night machines. Hey, does this one turn on? It is. Huh? Oh, I just say pushed. Yeah, it's just push the button to talk. All right, I'll push. For crying out loud, no wonder my rating's been so rotten for you. Why didn't you tell me I was supposed to push the button on this thing to talk into it? Oh, Cheapy spell all the way. They save money this way, you know, because whenever I talk on the radio here, it makes the juice out of the current, the transmitter there, go up. You know that. That's called modulation. You're like, oh, it costs more to do that than to go. That's right. <laughs> didn't you know that? You better tell her the principles of plate current out there and, and, uh, and amplitude modulation, uh, which is, by the way, the amateurs have a term for it. It's ancient modulation. That's the way they refer to it. Oh, yeah, almost all the radio stations that are on the air today are using an archaic method of transmitting. Yeah, it is. This is not single sideband here, you know. This is plain old ancient modulation used by old fogies and guys that uh, just don't want to pop for the new equipment. That's all. You know, uh, speaking of uh, of uh, that, as long as we're back on that subject, uh, a lot of people have wondered, how, how is it you grow to be a sore head? Uh, how is it that, say, James Thurber grew up to be James Thurber and not, uh, say, Moss Hart, who never was mad at anybody, you know? He just wanted to make dough. 
and and how 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 is this? Uh, how is it that Mark Twain, for example, grew to have that uh, funny look in the eye? And he did, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why he grew to have that funny look in the eye. Mark Twain, at one point, was a riverboat pilot. Now, there aren't many things that are more irritating, frustrating, and that teach a man more realism, and that convince a man of his basic uh, inadequacies, and also convince a man of how small he is than to be a riverboat pilot. Because the river is always sneaking and changing. And it tears the bottom out of the boat about every third or fourth day, sinks everybody on hand, and drowns them all without even a wink. Well, after a couple of years of this, you come east, and you just don't look at the world the same way that a guy living in an apartment in Brooklyn, you know, looks at it. Just not quite the same. Uh, Sixth Avenue does not swallow you up often. Just doesn't do that. And uh, very few Staten Island ferries are lost in the storm. Doesn't happen often. Well, as a child, I had just such a thing happen to me. I became embarked on a course that was every bit as rocky, every bit as frustrating, every bit as maddening as the thing about learning how... This is something that both pilot. Have you ever read Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi? Well, one thing that Twain talks a great deal about is learning how to be a pilot on the Mississippi and about these great pilots that he sailed with and about how the old pilots could sit in the pilot house and they could hear the sound of the paddle wheel. You ever been on a riverboat? Well, I have sailed on a riverboat. I have been on a real riverboat, too, and I don't mean the kind, you know, that they tie up at the dock down here for showbiz and all that. I mean a real riverboat, boy. And uh, one of the most exciting things, I'm, this is not a show about riverboats, so it's not what I'm going to bring it in. But I remember one night on a riverboat when uh, it was in the Ohio. And it was uh, nearing Louisville, as a matter of fact, on the Ohio, with the great hills rising on either side. You know, that's, that used to be pirate country. Are you aware that, that, that the inland pirate was a big deal in America at one point? And they hid in the caves along the Ohio River. And they would come darting out at night, 2 o'clock in the morning. They'd see these little red lights, the running lights of some stern wheeler going along, some big paddle boat going, maybe going up river, down river. They got a nice sound, you know. That's the way they sound. They don't, they don't sound like a motorboat. They have a... That's the way a paddle wheeler goes. And, and she is going up upstream or downstream, heading towards Portsmouth or heading towards Pittsburgh or maybe going down to New Orleans, down that great big flat, magnificent Ohio River there. And these guys would hide in the caves and they would wait and they would see the lights coming and then suddenly out of the darkness they would come with their little fast boats and oh, out they'd go like mad, rowing like insane maniacs. And they would head this boat off and they would fire a cannon right across her bow. You know, they really did the real thing. That big old fat cannonball would go whistling over the bow of the Island Queen. And they'd take away the pilot house. Like that. And then she would go. They'd throw her down into idle. And the boarding party would come aboard. And sitting there... Up on the up on the saloon deck would be the riverboat gamblers, the fancy ladies, all the drummers and the traveling salesmen, all the people who were heading towards New Orleans with a big fat poke, 
about to go down there to buy cattle, about to go down there to play a, a lot of pharaoh on the way, these guys would arrive with their derringers. Okay. And they would line them up by the rail and they would unload each one of them. They'd shuck them like an ear of corn. Once in a while, there'd be a fight and pow, the derringer would go off and then there would be the splash of a body in that muddy Ohio. And then, or maybe a half an hour later, these people would go sneaking, slinking back into their boats and they would go rowing off into the darkness. The creak of their oarlocks, the only sound to be heard. A riverboat pirate had struck again. Oh, speaking of riverboat, this is WOR AM and FM in New York. Now, this is not a program about riverboats. Not at all. I am merely illustrating a point here. That there are some things that uh, throw the fear of whatever it is in the darkness into people. And there are things which begin to convince you that there is a limit to your talents. You know, I, I think one of the things that the kids today have, have really, uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to cause all kinds of confusion in their minds, is that most schools today, in almost every progressive school there is, they rarely use the word talent except to say that everybody is. Uh, <laughs> this is something that everybody has. And they very carefully engineer their work and their courses so that nobody is up against that blank wall of not being able to do it that they never throw anything at them that transcends or goes beyond the talents of the kids involved. So a kid can very conceivably grow up believing he can do anything in this world. He really does. He believes he can write books, novels, plays. He can act. He can, if, uh, if, you know, if he, he could have been an Olympic star or anything else he wants. He could be anything he wants, providing he just decides to do it. And that gets a couple of lessons, and he's in business. This is a fascinating trap. And it, I think it's leading to some incredible... Already, it's leading to uh, great areas of discontent, griping. Well, there are a lot of 25-year-old guys that are really unhappy these days. Because up to about the age of 19 or 20, they believed that they were infinitely talented. They believed that they could do anything they wanted to do. That uh, they could write anything, they could... Anything they wanted, they could do it. And here they are at 25, you know, they're grown-up people. And they find that nobody is buying their junk. <laughs> They find that they find that nobody likes their crummy poetry. They find that, that their paintings are lousy. And so they're never going to concede because they've gone too long believing that they're talented, that the other people may be right. No, sir. The only one that can be wrong are the other people. This is absolutely true. So so they, they begin to believe that it is a rotten, decadent society that does not understand the true artist, that does not dig true talent. It does not dig, and of course he defines true talent as whatever it is he does. There's no question about it. His acting, his dreaming, or his sitting around, or his yelling, or his writing, or his painting, whatever it is. That is the talent. That's talent, see? Because very few people today, and, and that's one of the beauties of living in an insulated world. Very few people today are ever thrown into something that literally puts whatever talent they've got to a fantastic test, and they can tell when they failed. Because, you know, if you fail as a painter, you can always pretend nobody digs your painting. You can. They're not ready for it yet. You know, that syndrome. If you fail as a writer, you can always say, Ah, oh, those editors, what are they? A bunch of illiterate guys? I'll tell you what an editor is. He's a writer that never made it. That's what an editor is. He's a writer that never made it. So, 
What are you? What are they going to do? The minute they get something good in, what are they doing? Rap, rap, rip the right in half. That's it. <laughs> yeah, what is it? The kind of junk? What do you think they print? The kind of junk that they write. That's all. Well, I've heard this a million times. And uh, and this is this is a, a new, really, a new thing. Uh, comparatively new. There were elements of it earlier. But uh, I don't think we've ever encountered full generations that have grown up and have never known the bitter, sweet taste of defeat. Eh? Huh? Very few. Oh, I'll tell you. It's uh, very few of them have grown up knowing this. Uh, so you'll find you'll find uh, large numbers of people are very angry at society now, and you wonder why they're angry. Well, they believe that society has let them down. Society has not continued to tell them that they are infinitely talented, even though they sit around in the coffee shop by the hour and tell the world that they are. The world doesn't even answer. The world does not say, really? Holy smokes. Let me read it. And occasionally the world does say, let me read it. And it finishes and says, oh, oh, wow. Holy smokes. And then all the guy can do is sit back there and buy some more pot, look a little more angry, and go to right back to the drawing board and plot. Certainly that one day there will be a new world, a new government, a new life, a new group of sensitive people running the government, and they'll understand me that. They will understand. Well, maybe somebody does. That's, that could be the worst thing that could happen to a lot of people. However, uh, this is a, a thing I would like to recommend, if possible. In no way. Uh, this is a, you know, it's been a long time since I've given, given a lesson to the kids. Kids, are you listening? There is a limit, kid, to what you can do. Now, you don't know it. And maybe you'll never find it out. But there is a limit, kid, in almost every direction you care to choose. Now, uh, this is a very unpopular thing I'm saying here. <laughs> but I'm going to describe to you how it came to me one day. I'm this kid, see. Now, how these things happen, one doesn't know. How you drift, you know, along in life. How you meet the chick that you're going with. How you happen to... Uh, the, the, the random quality of life is inexplicable. But I can say that there was a kid living across the street from me who was a dilettante. And even at this day and age, he's a professional dilettante as far as I know. You never heard me talk about Lawrence, have you? Lawrence Stryker. You never heard me mention him. Well, old Lawrence was a dilettante. And he was the tall, languid, dilettantish type, you know, who somehow has the ability to attract a following just by his attitude, a sort of cool attitude towards things. He never played baseball, but he had a cool attitude towards it. You knew that if he wanted to play ball, he would be a gasser of a first baseman, which was, of course, not true. But this is the attitude he just sort of spewed out. You know, just kind of a cool, put-down attitude. And one of the things that he started to fool around with at about the age of maybe 15 or 16, much older than I was and all the rest of the little kids that were sort of great acolytes of his, he began to build radios. He began to build one-tube radios, two-tube radios, that kind of thing. And we all got sucked in. Well, within a very short time, some of the kids peeled off. You know, they just didn't stick with it. They went back to stamp collecting or scratching or breaking windows or yelling or whatever it is was, was their basic hobby, see. Uh, but others of us got trapped by that, that peculiar flypaper, that strange, you know what I'm talking about, Skip, 
that strange thing that catches you by the foot that you never get rid of once you have been trapped by the world of electronics. Once you have been sucked in, and I'm not talking about the hi-fi buffs, the guys that buy the kits, nothing at all. talking about something completely, completely alien to most of you. And suddenly I found myself at the age of, oh, maybe 11 or 12, insanely involved in something that was total and complete Greek to everybody around me. While everybody was sitting in, in, uh, in eighth grade, uh, parsing sentences, you know, uh, diagramming sentences, I am sitting there with my English book, and I am drawing two tube regenerative circuits. And I got so that I could draw a magnificent schematic diagram. And other kids would, would sit and they'd read the funny papers and they'd laugh and holler at the Katzenjammer kids or Flash Gordon or Superman or something. What am I doing? I am sitting there reading shortwave craft. And, and I could break out into a rash and, and literally tears would come in my eyes when I would look at a beautifully drawn schematic of a push-pull amplifier with inverse feedback. You know? I could look at that thing. Oh, look at oh, look, oh, look at look at look look what they look what they're doing with the cathode. Look, oh, you know, I just oh for crying out loud! And I would be down in the basement, and I'm drilling holes in chassis. I'm down there mounting transformers, and I got my soldering iron. Nobody else knew. I'm down there. I'm just that nut in the basement, you know, down there. <laughs> and, and I liked it that way. I absolutely preferred to have it that way because it was my own completely involved, impenetrable world. Well, one thing led to the next. And uh, in shortwave craft, they had these stories about amateur radio operators, you know, and all that. At first, I started to build radios, and I built a few little amplifiers, and I was experimenting with things. I built a three-tube shortwave receiver, and I began to listen to radio amateurs. I began to hear guys on 160, and I would hear, hello, CQ, hello, CQ, hello, CQ, 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 <laughs> hello, 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 CQ, 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 hey, will you check? I'm getting a little downward modulation. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, test. Hello, one, two, three, four. Hello, W9JZ. Hello, 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 test. I don't know, I'd hear the, that, that ticking clock in the background, and I'm listening. I'm about the age of 12 or so, and I'm sitting out there with my cans on my head, and I hear these people doing this magical thing. Well, I began to investigate. And sure enough, within like five minutes, you always find your level. You do. You do. Yeah, believe me, if, if you have the secret soul of a flagpole sitter, you will all of a sudden find flagpole sitters. How? I don't know. It's that secret magic elixir of life. You seek your own level. Well, here I am at the age of 12, and already I have found an amateur. One of the kids in my school's father was a real, live, operating, on-the-air, big-time amateur radio operator. Not only that, he had his pictures in the short wave craft and the whole thing, see? And so, one evening, I am sitting in his living room. I'm invited there by this kid, who I couldn't stand, by the way. And the only reason I could stand it was because he was sort of like himself. He was like a god, you know, because his dad was a ham, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, it's like, if you, can you imagine knowing a kid whose father is an astronaut? Well, I mean, you know, that would make a difference. I mean, can you imagine knowing a kid whose father was a gigantic movie star? 
said, you know, that wouldn't make a difference. The kid would have an aura around him. Well, this kid, was a, he had the snottiest aura around him, you see, because there were a whole bunch of us little would-be hams that followed this lout around. You know, his dad was a... <laughs> well, we arrived in... Myself and another kid arrived in the living room. And we could see in through the hall, past the John in this house. I can still remember this house. This house itself had a magical quality about it because it had a tremendous four-element rotary on the, on the roof of it, you know? And I arrived at, you know, there's a big rotary four-element beam, a big lazy H, you know? And that's the thing I've been reading about ever since years. I've been reading shortwave craft. There it is up there. And I could see that big rotor, and I could see those feed lines hanging down, and I could see the tuning stubs and everything. I'm standing just absolutely gassed, like other kids would have been gassed to see a, a rock and roll singer, you know? Other kids would have been gassed to see a movie star. Shepard is out there dissolving in the hydrangea bushes in front of a four-element lazy age. <laughs> oh, you know, I swore, look, he's got, look at, look at those two, look at those 600-ohm tuning stubs. Look at that, Schwartz, he's got copper. <laughs> well, five minutes later, <laughs> now this means nothing to any of you, I'm sure. You see, you're just listening out there, wondering what this, this manic thing is. We are sitting in, it's just as manic, by the way, as Mark Twain's hang up on the river, which meant very little and means very little to most people who read Mark Twain, except that it forever scarred Mark Twain and made him into a different man and made him write what he did. And so I'm sitting in the living room, and I look through that, that past the John, you know, through the hall, and I see in there a rack and panel. A six-foot rack and panel. And, you know, back home, I had ranged this, this whole table, this desk, you know, that I had gotten from my aunt, an old table she's going to throw out. I had it all fixed up in the corner of my room, and I had some shortwave listener cards, you know, from Spain and from England, a couple of, uh, tacked up. It was like a mock ham station. And I had my little two-tube shortwave Dorley regenerative receiver I'd built with the plug-in coils, and I had it all set up there. And I had I had this stuff under the earphones hanging on the side and everything, a little little loudspeaker that I'd put up on the wall that I bought at Allied, a six-inch loudspeaker, a night <laughs> loudspeaker. And I built the whole scene. It was up in the corner there. And so that was... And here I'm looking at the real thing. And I could see he had at the bottom of the rack, he had a... a a glass window. He had a window at the bottom of the rack. He had a, had a piece of glass set in with stainless steel rims around it. And behind that glass, I could see flickering a pair of 866 seniors. Flickering. That light blue, you know, that beautiful blue color of a mercury vapor rectifier when it's beginning, when it's drawing current and somebody's modulating. You see it flickering in there. Oh, boy. You know, I can't believe it. And I can hear the sound of that, that Hammerlund Super Pro he's got in there. Now, I don't know whether you know anything about that phrase. To any guy who is a ham, who was a ham at that period, when I say Super Pro, he breaks out in a cold sweat. That is like saying Ferrari to a guy who's fooling around with his little Austin Healy Sprite, you know. <laughs> A super pro. And I could hear the sound of that super pro, that... That fantastic background. Oh, boy, this thing is about a 0 .5... 0 .5 millivolt sensitivity. And he's in there working this thing. 
Well, Ray came out. His son, he says, come on, Dad. says, come on and be quiet. And we walk in, and both of us sort of stand there uncomfortably in the doorway. And there sitting at the swivel chair was the great man himself. He's got his shirt off, and he's wearing a T-shirt, and he's got that great big JT-33 crystal microphone in front of him, and he's working 20-meter phone, which was the ace band of the day. And he is talking to somebody way up in VE-1 land, someplace way up in Canada, W9JZ, and boom, he's coming back, and we're sitting, oh, boy, gassed. Just, this, this is an unachievable thing. It's like a kid being brought right into a space vehicle. And sitting at the controls is Colonel John Glenn. And he's about to take off, and you are allowed to observe him. He's the switches, you know. All right, bring it out. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah, check. Uh, Mercury 7 now, check. One, two, three, uh, intercom 4, check. Clunk, 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 clunk. Hello, boom, boom, boom. Check. One, two, countdown, nine, seven. You know, it's that, that exciting. We're both sitting there watching. Not saying a word. And he finishes his QSO. And he turns. And he says, hi, fellas. Hi. Hi. He says, uh, Ray says that you're interested in ham radio. <laughs> Well, uh, how'd you like to work some 160? Work some 160. Yeah, come on, let's go. With that, he band switching up the 160, and he gets on the air and he talks to somebody in the next town, and he says, "Hey, I got a couple of young kids here in the in the in the shack." He says, uh, "What'd you say your name was, Gene? Uh, yeah, oh, come on over. Come over. Here's Gene. Here's uh, Schwartz. Uh, Paul. Paul. Oh, come on over." And we sat down in front of the microphone. He says, uh, "Go ahead. Uh, I'm talking to Charlie over there. Gary, say hello to Charlie." I sat there. There was the first microphone in my life in front of me. The very first time that I faced a microphone. I said, "Hi, Charlie." Hi. If you notice, my technique has still not changed much. Hi. And Gil, the big ham, says, oh, okay, uh, I, uh, did you hear him there? Okay, Charlie. Uh, now this is Paul. Uh, Paul? <coughs> oh, Paul, this is... <coughs> okay, fellas. Uh, all right, uh, all right, Chuck. Uh, let's see. Uh, gee, anything new over there, Chuck? It's a fine day here. Uh, hey, listen, I talked to Al the other night. Yeah, W9 of LMP. Yeah, sure. Well, listen, I'm going to turn it back to you and see what, you got, what do you got over there at your end. At your end, Chuck. Uh, and if you got nothing else there, Chuck, 73s, so I'm going to pull a switch here for a while. I think I'm going to... The old XYL is ringing the dinner bell. I'm sitting there, you know, all this great ham talk. The old XYL is ringing the dinner bell. I'm going to tie on the dinner pail here. And uh, if you got nothing else, uh, well, I'll say, I'll, I, I think I'm going to QRT tonight. Yeah, I'm a little tired. I'll pull a switch here. So this is W9JZA turning it over to W9PLW, and we'll stand by for your 73s and possible final. Okay, Chuck. And I hear Chuck come back. W9JZA, W9JZA, he's a cool type ham, W9JZA, and this is W9PLW, okay, fine kill on everything there, uh, okay, uh, wait a minute, I got some notes here, what'd you say your name is, yeah, okay, Gene, yeah, okay, Gene, you come through fine, very good, and, uh, you too, Paul, well, okay, Gil, I think I'm gonna pull the switch here, too, say 73s, I'm sitting there, I'm out of my skull, out of my skull, can't believe it. You don't want to hear any more of this, do you? Well, that night I go home, 
And that was the night that I became a monk. That was the night that I, I gave up everything. Bubblegum chewing. I gave up second base playing. I gave up uh, yelling at Esther Jane. I gave up fist fighting. I did not have time for those childish pursuits. I did not have time because I had discovered a higher calling. <laughs> I had discovered I had discovered something way above and beyond the comprehension of ordinary kingdom. I dedicated myself to one thing. I am going to have a swivel chair. I am going to have a t-shirt. I am going to have a six-foot rack and panel. I am going to have a JT-33 crystal mic. And I am going to work 20-meter phone. I am going to get on. Yes. Life began to sing a clear, lucid song. Life began to have meaning. There was a theme, a classical theme running through my existence. Light, delicate, insistent, and yet immutable. And from that minute on, I would walk about the streets. I could see myself tuning up 600 homes at feed lines. I could see myself buying 866s. I could see myself seated at the key, the bug of a 500-watt transmitter on 40 meters CW. Other kids were cleaning Elgin bicycles. Other kids were dreaming of new basketballs. The senior prom. I was dreaming that one day I would have the most powerful signal on the band. One day I would be seated at the business end of a 50-kilowatt transmitter. Guess who is sitting at the end, the business end of a 50-kilowatt transmitter? Guess who, friends? Yes, hanging down right now, this very instant in front of me. Hanging here, red hot, is an electro-voice dynamic microphone. Through a bit of shielded cable, it will pre-amplifier and dense my telephone wires across the river. And out there in Carteret, New Jersey, with a couple of 900-foot towers hanging over the New Jersey turnpike, a 50-kilowatt transmitter on 710 on the dial. Brady, booming it out. Clear channel, laying it down. The boss man of 710. <laughs> well, you don't want to hear any more of that. I became dedicated. I became completely involved in something that, uh, that I couldn't even talk to other people about. And I'm sure that this affected Mark Twain. I'm sure that Mark coming back to the old family house, you know, Ma and Pa sitting around, they could not understand. He couldn't tell them how it feels to be out there on that dark river, 400 miles outside of St. Louis, with the current coming in hard and strong, and a sandbar sneaking up from that left port bow. Now, these things you can't say. And so I began to work. I bought red-covered books like the Amateur Radio Handbook. I began to buy things like the License Manual, the Q&A, Nilsson and Horner. I began to complete my library of strange... You know, I'm probably the only kid in my entire neighborhood who asked for and got a copy of the Electrical Engineer's Handbook for Christmas at the age of 13. 
complete with log tables, <laughs> Kirchhoff's Law, uh, decimal uh, tables and compounds, the whole scene. And I just got this leather-covered book, and I just held it in my hands. My kid brother's got his flexible flyer. I have my Nilsson and Horno. My old man didn't know what it was, you know. <laughs> he just knew that that's what I wanted. He thought it was a dirty book. <laughs> well, well, I began then to to, uh, to really study seriously. And before we get into the denouement, please, do you have a little whoopee thing there? They're up and running here Monday, Friday, January 11th at Bowie. Bowie race course. <laughs> Bowie race course. By the way, it says in here, rhymes with Dewey. Do they mean Tom or John? Which famous Dewey does Bowie rhyme with? I ask all of you at Bowie. Maryland's famed track in the pines opening earlier than ever for 52 days. These race guys are getting nuttier than ever. They start in the middle of winter, January the 11th. They're going to be standing. Wait till you see what's new at Bowie. The grandstanding clubhouse have been enlarged, I hope, heated and modernized for greater comfort and convenience. Post time is also new, 1 o'clock. In fact, they're going to have all-night racing one of these days, all-year racing, year-round, with special shoes for the horses, for snow. What? Yeah, corn. I see what you mean. Anyway, glass-enclosed and heated New York-area racing fans may travel to buoy via Casser tour buses or Pennsylvania trains. Casser buses leave daily from 7.15 to 9.15 from 201 West 41st Street. Pensy trains from uh, Penn Station, of course. Daily at 8 a.m. Plan to visit Bowie. Maryland's track in the pines. Opening this coming Monday, January 11th. Post time, 1 o'clock. What a horn blow. How do you think they want it, Jazz? Crying out loud. You know, there's, there's something haunted about... A, a large group of racetrack devotees, a large group of $2 bettors gathered at, at 6 o'clock in the morning waiting to be taken to their doom. <laughs> it is. It's a fast day. Only in New York do you see them. Oh, that's a special breed. But let me tell you, speaking of special breeds, uh, I, I began to study to become a ham. Well, now, now I was embarked on a rocky sea. Because in those days, it was not a multiple-choice thing, Skip. In those days, they gave you ten questions. Essay questions. And they meant it. And every month, they would publish in QST, which was a big amateur radio journal and remains that of the time. They would publish, strangely enough, they don't do it any longer, the percentage of pass-ees every given month for the amateur radio exams. And at that time, they had something like 15 to 20 percent pass ease. And I would see that. And I knew that I was facing the bull itself. I was to go in over the horns. Well, we quickly pass over the next year, which is a total blank to me. I was dedicated. Day after day, hour after hour. My mother would wonder why, you know, why my, my grade in English fell suddenly to D minus. Why in geography I was barely limping along. Why I hardly made it in algebra. But let me tell you, I was really something around those class B modulators. I was the only kid in the entire school who knew anything about class C RF amplification. The only kid. Well, now comes that moment when I began to see the edge of talent approaching. I got my license. 
I learned the code. And I began to taste something funny in my veins. What was it? CW. Now, I, I, perhaps you don't know what CW is, friend. CW is code. You've heard code? You've heard people on, on the radio sometime when, when you see the submarine movies, the guy that's going... I'm sending you actual code via kazoo. I, I am, actually. I will give you the brass figure if you could have read it. And I am beginning to become hung on something. At 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, I am working amateur stations on code. And it seemed that as I worked, as I began to develop a technique in this strange art of transmitting to other people with my fingers. You know, code is an interesting way to talk. Transmitting with my fingers and hearing this sound coming in, these high, thin, wailing voices from a thousand miles away, from two thousand miles away, from across the ocean, that I began to hear that others could do it faster and better. I began to hear that beautiful sound of a beautiful fist, and I finally rose to 20 words a minute, 30 words a minute, 40 words a minute, and finally I got a 45 word a minute certificate a lightning-fast operator. And done one night on 40 meters, I met my match. One night on 40 meters at 3 o'clock in the morning, I hooked up with a guy from Pittsburgh, and we got into a speed match. And by 3.15 that morning, I was reduced to a rubble. I met a guy who could send and receive well in excess of 60 words a minute on 40 meters. It was then that I knew that out there in that dark river there are shores. Out there there are people who can really do it. Somewhere there's a guy that can really, really make it move. And that there are limits. I can only say to the rest of you guys, you kids out there, you're lucky. You have not yet been put to the test. You have not at 3 o'clock in the morning met a guy who could really write a play. You have not met at 4 o'clock in the morning a guy who could really act. You have not met at 4.15 a.m. a guy who could send and receive on above 200 watts on 40, 65 words a minute in coded groups without even missing a beat for a half hour on end. And until you do you are living in a dream. A dream.